This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. Everyone, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Josh read the text for us earlier. Appreciate him doing that and allows us to immediately dive in and be able to examine the Word of God this morning. We actually conclude the section of chapter 4, but it doesn't completely conclude the section that we've called the household code. This is the household code, which is basically a section of Scripture that runs beginning in chapter 4, verse 25, through chapter 5, verse 5. But we end chapter 4 this morning, and what we one of the things I said last week is that in these verses here is actually 10 imperatives, 10 commands that are given here. And so we'll look at the last two imperatives, in, uh, uh, imperative number 9 and 10 in verses 31 and 32 this morning. You know, last week we looked at a passage, the verse before that in verse 30 that dealt with the the command of not grieving the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we discussed and, and talked about last week was the fact that a lot of times when we hear the command or we hear the phrase of not grieving the Holy Spirit, we tend to think about this in terms of personal sins that we commit uh, before God. But instead, what we've learned is that the command not to grieve the Holy Spirit doesn't refer to our personal sins against God, but instead it refers to our sins against one another in the church body, which in turn is the sinning against God. We are, as a church, united by faith. We're united by our bond in Christ. We are united by God's Spirit. The Spirit's work of sanctification includes unifying us in the local church and because God, believe it or not, God has actually ordained the relationships of this church body as a means of sanctifying us and making us holy. And so here there is the Spirit of God is grieved at any point, in any time where there is some kind of fracture or rupture or disruption in the relationship of the church body because it prohibits or it stunts or it hurts the ability for the church to be spiritually, to grow into spiritual maturity. The Spirit's work is unifying the body, bringing and building the body together in Christ. And when we have when we have fractured or ruptured relationships in the church, it grieves the Spirit of God. This is what chapter 4, verse 30 last week was teaching us. And so all of this section really is all dealing with relationships in the church. It began in chapter 4, verse 25, where Paul says, Therefore lay aside falsehood and speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. And when we looked at that, we understood that the word for that, the speaking truth there, could also be you know, translated as being truthful. Really, you could almost, if you wanted to correctly translate that, it would be truthing in love. We're to be truthing in love is what we are to do. That is our responsibility towards one another. And what that means is being truthful in love is that we have, an, there's an expectation that we are sharing life together as God's people, and that demands that there be integrity in everything that we do with one another. 
The reason why Tommy stopped us a little while ago is to, because he wanted to make sure that we were being truthful, that there was integrity, there was a connection between what was coming out of our mouths and what is in our heart. It is dangerous when there is a disconnect between what is coming out of our, out of our mouths and what is in our heart. A, a major problem. And so I appreciate him stopping us, helping us to understand that this, you know, part of the, part of the reason that we, that we do this where our minds can be one place and we're singing words and we're not, you know, and we're just like, Jesus is mine. I mean, you know, it's like, really? You know why that happens? Because we don't come prepared for worship. Man, but think about what that says. If your mouth's one place and your heart's somewhere else, you know what? That is not being, that is not speaking truthfulness and love. It's a disconnect between heart and lips. That's lacking integrity. You're not just lying to God, you're lying to one another. And that's why these things are so important for us. This section of the Bible is rules for God's family. It's God's household. It's the household conduct. It's what God expects of us for those who belong to him. That's why this section is so important. But what we also understand by looking at chapter 4, verse 30 last week, is understanding that the Holy Spirit is grieved when, we are dis, when, when there's not the kind of unity and when there are fractured relationships in the body of Christ. When those things happen, what we have to understand is what the Bible is teaching us is that the local church is central and it is critical to our growth in spiritual maturity. There's no spiritual maturity without a meaningful and healthy relationship to the local church. And that's so foreign to us. In our culture, we're so individualistic in our attitudes and ideas about sin and salvation and being Christian. You know, uh, it, you know it, we've, we've made that a personal and individualistic enterprise. That the idea that the church itself is so critical to our sanctification and our maturity is something that doesn't really register with us. We're not accustomed to thinking about spiritual maturity and even sin itself in the terms of the covenant community. But that's exactly how the Lord wants us to understand it. Instead, in our American Christianity, we don't place much value on the local church. Instead, we're a society, as I just said, that's steeped in individualism. And it's a struggle to get Christians, Christians to see how relationally disconnected we've become to the church because for generations we've heard about Jesus being our personal savior and, we've, and that we seek God in our personal times and we can skip out on church just because we can attend anywhere or elsewhere or we, can, you know, we feel like we can be fed spiritual truth through our favorite preachers or podcast or radio or TV or whatever it may be. There's all kinds of opportunities and avenues to where we think we can pursue spiritual maturity apart from the local church. We place such a minimal value on God's community, not realizing that God put us into a community of sinners being sanctified in order for us to become more like him. You know, you hear that? Sinners being sanctified. I need each one of you and your process of sanctification in my life to help me grow in my own personal sanctification. 
even when the relationship gets messy. Even when I sin against you and you sin against me, there is sanctification when we can embrace each other and say, please forgive me. I have sinned. God works in that. Even in the messiness, even in the, when we sin against one another, grace is there if we approach it the way Scripture tells us to. Listen, whenever Christians are out of sorts with one another, God is concerned. Whenever Christians are stubbornly clinging to behaviors that allows for anger or discord or malice or bitterness, or whenever Christians refuse to assume their responsible positions within the community, whenever there's destructive words, uh, words to one another, all of this grieves the Spirit of God. And we have learned throughout Ephesians that God has placed us in this community, in this community of faith, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And even the messiness of our relationships, like I just said, is meant for our sanctification. And so when we come now to these next two verses in verses 31 and 32 of chapter four, notice what he now says. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. And so as we come to these verses, there are six things here. That The first thing that the Apostle Paul tells us are six things we've got to put away. Six things we have to put away, and the reason we can put these things away is all because of the gospel. And so here our first section in verse 31 of entitled is the things we must throw away. And I say that because really... Some of your translations may differ. For example, the New American Standard, the English Standard, and the King James will say, you know, that these six items of clamor or bitterness and wrath and things of that nature are to be put away. The Christian Standard Bible will say removed from you. But in many ways, as much as I love those translations, it really weakens the force of it. The NIV and the NLT actually get it right here by translating this, get rid of. These are things that you don't just put away. These are things you must throw away. They've got to be removed. You've got to be tossed out. In fact, the word that's used here is actually even a nautical term. It's a term that is used when people are on a ship to throw an anchor. You are literally removing it from, from, you know, from the deck, removing it from your midst here. And so the Bible is telling us these six things that he just listed in verse 31, these things must be forcefully removed. That's the, that's the strength of the language here. These six things are things that must be forcefully removed. We have to go on seek and destroy missions to get rid of these six things that he just described. And so what are these things? What are these things that he mentions here? Well, the first one he tells us is bitterness. And bitterness here, let me first say that bitterness begins first with anger. And the anger here is something that really is a, anger itself is a response to an incident. Something happens that triggers anger. But the bitterness here is, is is beyond just a response to a single incident that happens, but bitterness results from resentment over, you know, or resentment that's, that's harbored from the incident that has occurred. In other words, this is anger that has become settled down. 
It's anger that begins to kind of make a home in your heart. It's anger that moves away from just being angry over an incident that moves then to a general animosity to the person. That's resentment. That's the bitterness that Paul's talking about. This is the reason why, if you remember, we, when we earlier looked at chapter 4, verse 27, Paul talked about the need for reconciliation quickly. Why? Because what happens is if we do not confront, if we don't seek reconciliation, if we don't seek forgiveness, if we don't seek peace or make the things for peace, we basically give the devil a field day opportunity for the church. And if you don't deal with these things quickly, instead what happens is, is that a single incident can eventually become a matter of bitterness that resides in your heart. Paul says that's the first thing you've got to throw away. The second thing he says here is the word wrath. It's very interesting. It's a word that doesn't show up very often. And many times it actually speaks of God himself. But this kind of wrath is different from the next word of anger. Depending on your translation, you may have an inversion of some of those two words. But there is a very big difference between these two words. The wrath here is more like an explosion. It's a wrath that is an emotional outburst. It's a kind of anger that results from resentment over time. Where there's just an inward resentment that just resides there. And it's like a, it's like a slow burning amber or, you know, like a, just a, 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 a fire that just has these ambers that are just glowing and glowing. Until eventually, when it's stirred the right way, it erupts into a flame. Words in the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament that, of, that often define this exact same word are things like this. Fierceness, fury, wrath, indignation, angry outburst, and even a hot temper. If ultimately, the wrath that Paul's describing here is an emotional outburst of anger that stems from a lack of self-control. Essentially, it's like someone saying they lost it. But this is the second thing the Bible says to us that as a Christian, you got to throw away. The third thing here is anger. We encountered this word anger earlier back in chapter 4, verse 26. But the anger here is, is it's the same word we encountered there, but it's, it's kind of the stage before bitterness. This is the anger that occurs when there actually is an incident that happens. Maybe someone offends you, someone says something, someone does something to you. And, and this kind of anger is an, it, it, this kind of anger can turn into bitterness if it's not dealt with quickly. It gives the devil a place to exercise his work of division, his work of disunity, his work of slander if we don't deal with this kind of anger immediately. But anger in this way is very destructive because oftentimes, you know, if we're not careful, we can even hide our anger or we can hide uh, even the feelings and the emotional hurt that was brought by maybe what somebody said or what someone did. And we can hide that. And if we're not careful that anger can quickly become unrighteous and it can become destructive, which is what the warning was in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 4. 
Not seeking reconciliation, not having forgiveness leads to bitterness and creates the long-term damage, not just to yourself, but also to the relationships and even the unity of God's people. The fourth one here is the word clamor. It's literally, Paul says, it's literally the word for shouting. It's used, for example, in other places in the New Testament where it speaks of someone shouting to make an announcement. It's even, I even found a usage in the Bible where it speaks of someone shouting because they're in pain. But it's literally the word for shouting, and you can kind of think about this. This is someone, Paul is referring to, some, referring to someone who is quarreling, a quarreling or an argument that leads to scornful words and angry tones and raised voices and invective speech. It comes from a heart that is irritable and it's inclined to being harsh towards others and having embittered speech. When you think about, for example, when you hear people that are maybe having a heated argument and you think about the kind of things that they, that they might say in those moments of a heated exchange, generalizations that someone may speak about saying, well, you always do this and you never do that, right? You know, we get these sort of, these kinds of expressions, these kinds of sayings. And it comes from an internal animosity that is stored up that changes your temperament. And rather than pursuing peace, you're led to fight and argue and shout, disrespectful, making facial expressions or storming out of a room or being demanding or whatever those things may be. I mean, probably all of us at some point have seen this in our lives if we are not guilty of having done it. It's scary to me to think about how many homes and marriages, even in our churches, are filled with this kind of clamor. But this is what happens when there is this, when there, when there's an a an incident that causes anger. And when it's not dealt with biblically, it can lead to bitterness. And when the bitterness is there, it can lead to this wrath, this outburst. And sometimes your outburst of wrath may not even be directed against the person that sinned against you. Instead, you might take it out on the others around you. And then sometimes that, that outburst of wrath can lead to this clamor that leads to words or things spoken and things said that, have, that are just completely inappropriate for a child of God. And then that can lead to the fifth thing here, slander, basically evil speaking. Paul says here, this is what's amazing, the word here for slander, the fifth thing that Paul identifies here, literally in the Greek is the word blasphemia. You probably can make the connection where, what, where we get in the English from that, blaspheme. Essentially, it means to slander or to speak evil against in other words, this is when anger and hostility towards one another leads to speaking in a hurtful way, not just directly to one another, but even speaking about that person to other people. Gossip, right? backbiting. You think about defamation, bad-mouthing, maligning, lying about someone. You know, the old expression that misery loves company, you know, is you could also say that, you know, guilty people love the company of more guilty people, right? You know, make yourself feel better when you can make, when you can take people around you and make them, make them or form their opinions about somebody you don't like, make their opinions match yours. So we become destructive in how we talk about them, describe them, these types of things. Because we don't want to have to deal with God alone by ourselves with our guilty consciences. We'd rather drag other people under our guilt as well. 
And then the last word is the sixth one here. Paul says malice. Malice here is a term really used as a summary statement. It's a general term that indicates any kind of form of wickedness or vice or moral corruption. It's any kind of, it's in any way, any action that is meant to do harm to our neighbor, whether it's our words, whether it's our attitudes, or whether it's our actions. Any motive, any emotion, any word, and any attitude that does damage to the unity of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, we are to throw away. Because all of this is the kind of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, a real, a real question we have to, before we just move on to this, to move to, chapter, to verse 32, you know, a real question we have to ask is this, does this define you? Does it define me? You know, what's in our heart when people offend us? How do we respond? You know, I, we said before that, you know, a lot of times we get, people get defensive and people, you know, they become combative. Oftentimes, it's all related to, to pride. Because we first of all start with way too high of an opinion of ourselves to begin with. And so we become easily offended because we think too highly of ourselves. You know, some of you may be getting angry with me right now for bringing all this up. I don't know. But you know, the reality is, because you know what? You may be sitting in a pew, and even those around you may, may be thinking things about you like, yeah, that's how they act at home. And so you may be getting embarrassed right now. I told the students we had in Sunday school, I said, you know what instrument is described for the Bible? It's a sword. Last I checked, the Bible didn't call itself a feather. The Word of God is not here to tickle you. It's here to stab you. And it's okay if it hurts. The Bible attacks the sins of our hearts and exposes what's deeply wrong within us. Listen, I, 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 I cringe to think about maybe perhaps how some of you may speak to one another in your homes. It burdens me to think about some of the marriages that maybe we have in our churches of how people may speak to one another or maybe how children speak to their parents or these kinds of things. And let me tell you something. If you are in what you call a Christian marriage, your spouse is not just your spouse. They are first your brother and sister in Christ. They are your closest neighbor. And that kind of speaking... That kind of anger, that kind of resentment, these kinds of things that Paul just commanded us that we are to throw away is to have absolutely no place in the life of the Christian. None. Maybe some of you are struggling with that kind of bitterness and hurt and anger and unforgiveness. And so we have to ask the question here, if that is the problem, then what's the solution? How do we get over this? If this is something you're struggling with, what is the answer? And that's verse 32. Don't you love it? The Bible throws up the problem, and then the Bible gives the answer. Whoa. It's like it's inspired or something. So here is the solution. We forgive as we are forgiven. The Bible here in verse 32 points us to the cross. In short, you remember the gospel. 
But notice what he does here. Paul gives us three things that he says that we are told to do. This is the last imperative. We are to first be kind, then be compassionate, and then the third one is we are to be forgiving towards one another. But none of that is done by our own power. None of that is done by our own strength. This is not what, you know, Paul is not commanding some personal willpower here where you just kind of think happy thoughts and you'll be able to just, you know, get over what somebody has done for you. No, instead, what Paul is doing here is taking us back to the work of the cross. You look at the last phrase that is said there in verse 32. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The key to victory over those kinds of sins is first and foremost remembering the work of God in Christ. That's the beginning point. And notice that last phrase is just as. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something that is meant to, we are to conform to. We are to be kind and caring and forgiving because it's exactly what God did for us in Christ. This takes us all the way back to, if you remember, at the very end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul prayed a passionate prayer that we would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner man for one purpose, to know and comprehend the depth of Christ's love. If we can comprehend the depth of Christ's love, that then takes us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where we are to be humble, pursue peace, pursue unity, all of these things. Because, and we can do that because we, have, we can pursue those avenues of love because we have experienced the love of Christ. So everything here is about reciprocity. We reciprocate what we've received. We extend what we have been given. That is what the Bible is calling us to. And so the blessing here of forgiveness is really, it's, it's at the heart of the new covenant. The strategy here for overcoming and winning the battle of bitterness or anger or resentment is to first consciously think about God's forgiveness of us through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call to remember the gospel. Hebrews chapter 8, reflecting on the on the work of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 quotes a major section of Jeremiah 31. And Hebrews says this. This is the pinnacle of the new covenant. God says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's the heart of the new covenant. God not remembering our sins because of the work on the cross. This is only possible because of the work of the Lord Jesus God could not simply forget sins unless there was atonement for sins. This is why we celebrate the cross. The cross reminds us that God poured out both mercy and judgment at the same time. He provided mercy in giving his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of God. And it was judgment because Jesus was our righteous substitute who paid the price for our rebellion. Our rebellion, our judgment, what we did not deserve. Jesus bore the wrath of God in his body on our behalf of everyone who trusts in him. In fact, when we started the book of Ephesians, we read in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, speaking about Christ, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. I love it because you literally could take the word lavished and you could translate it, went extreme. God went extreme on his love for us. Isn't that cool? 
I like extreme sports, so I like that word. And so the logic is very similar. In Ephesians 4.32, the New Testament scholars often call this a conformity pattern. We conform to God's actions. Our, Our actions are to resemble or to conform to God's actions. And it's a just as pattern here. We forgive just as God forgave. It's very simple. Remembering God's forgiveness towards us in Christ, it enables us to reflect and give forgiveness toward others. This not only applies to us forgiving other Christians of their sins, but let me say this also. This even applies to forgiving non-Christians of their sins. You say, what do you mean? Well, you know, well first of all, let's, let's remember Jesus is the one himself who commanded to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and even do good to those who spitefully use you. But we have to also remember something, right? Unbelievers act like unbelievers because everything they do is in the context of them being enslaved to sin. So we can't always think about just because of the sins of an unbeliever. We have to put it into that kind of a context. They are enslaved to iniquity to begin with. These aren't necessarily just personalized sins. These are sins that are done with a heart that is enslaved to rebellion. But we must remember that when we experience hurt by unbelievers, we don't take these things so personally. Why? We entrust them instead to the Lord, and we genuinely pray for their salvation. But when it comes to the issue of just forgiveness and how do we not hold resentment, how do we not be angry, how do we not do these things, I mean, no one better explains this than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, I'm gonna ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 and look at this parable together that Jesus illustrated the great danger of having attitudes like anger and bitterness among the people of God. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, Peter comes up to the Lord Jesus and asks him, Lord, how often shall my brother against me, a sin against me, and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you, but seven times, but instead 70 times seven. And of course, what Jesus is doing here is being exaggerative. He's using hyperbole. He's exaggerating the statement here to show us that, that, that as Christians, as 1 Corinthians 13, by the way, teaches us about the characteristic of love, that love does not keep a record of wrongdoing. And so here, Jesus is exaggerating this to show we're not, you're not to keep track of how many times it's sinned against you. And then Jesus turns around and he issues this parable beginning in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now look, let me stop there. This man, who by today's standards, owed millions upon millions to this king. Jesus deliberately used here an exorbitant amount to make the point about what this king is about to do. It's to emphasize the level of grace, the magnitude of grace that this king is about to exercise. In verse 25, he says, But since this servant did not have the means to repay his Lord, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and everything he had and repayment be made. And so the slave, he fell to the ground. He prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. 
What is interesting about that, it was an action that the slave himself could not do. He had not the means to repay something that was the equivalent of, to, by today's standards, level, you know, around $10 million in value. But notice the actions here in verse 27 of the king, or the Lord here. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Three things there. Three things that are, that are incredible and that are meant to grab our attention. He felt compassion, he released him, and he forgave the debt. And we have to remember those three actions by the Lord as we continue this parable. So verse 28, as the slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii, maybe about $5,000 or $10,000 at the most, he seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. And again, this is, to be, this is another way uh, Jesus is using exaggeration. The point here is to shock the audience, to compare 10 million to 10,000. A way of helping us to understand the massive amount of difference between these two sums of value. And so while the servant owed millions to his Lord, he found a servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And Jesus, shocking his audience, explains here that he went and began to choke him to pay back what you owe. But verse 29, look what happens. So his fellow slave fell to the ground. Did it, notice here, by the way, he did the exact same thing that he did earlier. He fell to the ground. He pled with him saying, be patient with me and I will repay you. The very same words that he spoke to the king. And then he says, but in verse 30, he was unwilling. He went, threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. And so when his fellow slaves saw what, would happen, what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported this to the Lord, everything that had happened. You see, the actions of this slave were so astounding to those who, who knew the kind of grace that he had just received that Jesus says that the other servants actually were deeply grieved over what they had just witnessed. And by the way, the word grieved there is the exact same word in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, speaking about the Holy Spirit's grief as well. They were grieved because they know exactly what, this, what the Lord just did for this particular servant. And in verse 32, the, the king summons him in and says, and the Lord says to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave? Here it is, in the same way that I had mercy on you. Should you not have replicated my actions to you to this slave? And in verse 34, Jesus concludes this by saying this. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That should be a sobering parable for us. Let me explain something. Hurts are real. I get it. Everyone who ever lives is going to experience hurt. Hurts are real. People will lie. People will deceive. Some of us have experienced deep betrayal. We've experienced infidelity. We've experienced abuse, theft, maybe being victims of slander or defamation or these types of sins. All those things happen. 
The hurt is real. The emotional pain is understandable. But the remedy of self-pity and bitterness and blaming others for their lack of understanding does not justify our attitudes of harboring unforgiveness or bitterness, especially if we claim to know the forgiveness of Christ. There's no way that we can look at the cross and feel justified to hold our own personal feelings of bitterness or unforgiveness. 10 million doesn't compare to the 10,000. Even the sins of, from others that you have experienced done against you doesn't stack up in comparison to all of your sins done against God. That was the point that Jesus was making is that how can this guy not have any compassion, not have any pity, want to choke this guy to death for the little amount that he owed, and he completely lost sight of the massive amount of debt that he was just forgiven. I understand many of us have experienced hurt. I have too. But I can't harbor unforgiveness. I can't harbor bitterness. I can't harbor anger or dislike any brother or sister. And I can't harbor any of that in my heart and then look at the cross at the same time. The only reason why that I can harbor bitterness or unforgiveness in my heart is because I'm instead ignoring the cross, not because I'm looking at it. It is there, in that last phrase there, that Paul says in verse 32, be just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This takes us now to understand the first first three things that we are to take on, to be kind to uh, to one another, to be tenderhearted or compassionate and forgiving each other. You know, we can understand how to do those things now because we are commanded to act just like God in Christ acted towards us. Here Paul is telling us, you know, you know, throw out those six things that we looked at in verse 31 and instead now take on these attitudes of grace. The kind of grace and forgiveness extended to you, those are the kind of attitudes now, the attitudes of grace that you and I are now to take on. When we consciously contemplate God's forgiveness towards us, it cultivates inside of us attitudes of grace. They become part of our character. God's, and I hope you hear this, God's forgiveness toward us frees us to offer forgiveness towards other people. It it frees you up. It frees me up. It frees, when we experience the liberation of God's forgiveness, we can offer that same forgiveness and liberation towards others. We must pray for the Lord to point us to the cross and understand the depth of Christ's love, the depth of God's love, uh, the depth of God's forgiveness. Because when we do, we will take on these freeing characteristics of grace that are outlined here in verse 32. The first one Paul lists is kindness. The kindness here is, is just the, the, you know, there's nothing, I can't say anything fancy about it. It's just the moral quality of just being good. 
You know, you ever just say that? You know, that's just a good person. You know, just their, their motives are good. They're just kind-hearted. They're just good people, you know? Don't you just love it when you meet somebody who's just good and genuine? You know, when they talk to you, you just believe everything they say. You just pray to God they never disappoint you, right? It, the kind of kindness here he's talking about, it's, a, it's the genuine goodness of what's in the character and the motives of a person. It embodies the attributes of love and just charity. You know, the kind of things that were described in 1 Corinthians 13 of being patient and not being jealous and not being arrogant or not being selfish, not looking out or seeking your own interest and not being easily provoked. Not taking into account wrongs suffered, as we talked about earlier. Instead, we are commanded to be kind in view of God's kindness shown to us. Real simple. We are beneficiaries of a God who has been extremely kind to us. When we were the least people that deserved it. We're also commanded to be compassionate, literally tender-hearted. This word's only used two times in the entire New Testament. Where there's a lack of compassion, there is usually self-righteousness. As I said before, you really can't look at the cross and harbor unforgiveness. You really can't look at the cross and count someone else's sin and not consider your own sin. This doesn't mean that we just overlook the sins of others. I mean, look, look when, when people are hurtful, when people sin against you, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 teach us to go and how to confront someone in that sin so we don't give the devil an opportunity. But the compassion here, it means really, it, it, it's to have compassion, to be to have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit work on us, a spirit of compassion means we're the kind of people that stand ready to forgive. We're always ready to forgive. If they come to you a hundred times a day and ask for forgiveness, Jesus tells us you forgive them. You stand ready with an attitude of forgiveness. Why? Because of the magnitude of your own sin that has been forgiven. Kindness and forgiveness will be the character of our hearts. Not holding grudges, not keeping count of things done wrong, not, by the way, not bearing incidents that happen on storing them up only so when you get to a heated discussion you can bring them up later. All of these kinds of things are the types of things that Paul says they've got to be. If you're in Christ and if you know the cross, if you've experienced forgiveness, those are the kind of things that have got to be thrown away you throw them as hard and as far as you possibly can and you know what let me tell you something the more we stare at the cross the greater our arm strength to throw those things away i love colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 it's kind of a summary of these verses paul says so as those who have been chosen of god holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, and whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, because it's the perfect bond of unity. <laughs> what a wonderful set of verses. Again, you see that conformity pattern that's laid out for us right there. And Paul says that when we put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and forgiveness and patience, there's no way that we're going to have bitterness. There's no way we're going to have anger. There's not going to be wrath. 
There's not going to be gossip. There's not going to be wrongful behavior towards each other. Instead, what we're going to find is that when we stare at the cross, when we consider the weight and the magnitude of God's forgiveness towards us, we'll find that we'll, we'll take on the characteristics of grace, which is kindness, humility, and compassion, and patience. Listen, all of us are going to end up sinning against one another at some point. That's just going to happen. But we use those as a way of being able to pour out the forgiveness on one another that has been given to us. It's a powerful testimony to the world. Anybody can storm out of a room and say, I'm never coming back to this place. Anybody can storm out of a relationship that gets bitter. Anybody can storm out of, out of any kind of uncomfortable situation. But the people of God who have experienced regeneration, who have experienced transformed life, the people of God who have experienced forgiveness of such a magnitude that they can never repay back, they're the ones that shows the rest of the world what the gospel is, what the new creation is, what new life is, what being born again is, when they go up to somebody else in that church and they say, brother or sister, I love you because God's loved you. You sinned against me, but I forgive you. And I just want our fellowship to be richer. And I want our journey and sanctification to be upward, Christward, and Godward in everything we do. What does it tell the world? When even in the messiness of our lives and in the messiness of our relationships and even when we sin against one another, what does it tell the world about the gospel and the power of transformed lives when we seek forgiveness from each other, pray for each other, show compassion, and we continue to strive towards unity? That's something the world's not used to seeing. The world's used to seeing that, well, if they don't, if they don't like that, I'll just never come back. The world's used to seeing selfishness in relationships that when people don't get their way, they can walk out of a marriage, they can walk out of a home, they can walk out of a church, they can walk out of any other institution, they can drop something that doesn't work for them. That's what the world expects, but that's not what the church expects. Because we're the people that have been, we have received a massive amount of forgiveness that could never be repaid. We can't harbor bitterness, anger, guilt, and resentment and look at that at the same time. It can't be done. It's not easy. I'll mention this. In Luke chapter 17, 3 through 5, this is a bit of a humorous note. Jesus says in Luke 17, 3, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he, if he repents, forgive him. In verse 4, he says, And if he sins against you seven times a day. Listen, you hear that? You hear this? If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. You know what the apostle said to that? Lord, increase our faith. I don't blame them. And it's kind of like, are you serious, Lord? Jesus says that he sins against you seven times in a day. And if he repents, you keep forgiving him. And the apostles just say, I'm going to need some better faith than what I got right now. You know what, though? 
What's kind of a humorous admission on their part is exactly the truth of what we have to admit. You know why? Because the kind of forgiveness and this level of forgiveness that the Bible is talking about here is not something that is done in our own strength. I didn't bring it with me, but I actually printed off, you know, the five ways to not be bitter according to Buddha. I'll spare you. But it's interesting to me because it's all about strength, your personal will, your personal abilities. The Bible's the very opposite. You can't. You want to be able to forgive somebody seven times in a day? You can. But you know what? It doesn't come from you. It comes from the inner strength and the working and the power of the Spirit of God. Only the child of God can forgive in the way that the Bible's talking about here. When the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith, the Lord Jesus kind of says, bingo, you got it. Where we need to forgive, we need God to increase our faith. Where we need to forgive, we need the Lord to open our eyes and see the cross and its glory in a more spectacular light. Anytime we face difficulties in relationships, may God increase our faith to help us to look to the cross. Because when we do that, you know what happens? We become a little less petty. We tend to be more patient with each other. We tend to extend grace. We tend not to become so easily angered. The word of God, the spirit of God tends to have a calming influence over us. And we, you know, and when we see practices and patterns of sin that are done against us, we, we, we are able to go up to them and just say, hey, brother, you may not have known this, but man, I, I didn't really, what you said there just, man, I, I don't know. I, I didn't know how to take that. What, what did you mean by that? And giving somebody the benefit and the opportunity to be able to explain themselves. And maybe they admit to you and say, you know what, I, I, that was the wrong thing to say and I apologize. And it's over. And Satan doesn't get an opportunity to be able to slander the name of the church. Saying, oh, there's another, there's another issue. There's another church that's fighting. Hmm. Instead, let's stare and contemplate the glory of the cross greater. So the Lord will increase our faith. And when he does that, he'll sweeten the fellowship, the relationships with one another, and bring more unity and harmony in the body of Christ. That's what God calls us to do. So look to the cross, and you'll see how few wrongs are done to you in comparison to the wrongs that were done to God. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we will take on these attitudes of grace. The attitudes of grace, Lord, that can only come from a thoughtful and contemplative, Lord, staring at the cross. A reflection, Lord, on the level of forgiveness that you have provided to us. Lord, help us in our daily lives to be able to reciprocate, Lord, the level of forgiveness and grace that you have shown to us. Lord, help us to be kind. Help us to be compassionate. And help us, Lord, to stand ready and willing to forgive, Lord, because when we come to you by faith, trusting in the blood and the righteousness and the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, you do not deny us. Help us, Lord, not to deny one another in the plea for forgiveness. God, help us to even have a holy courage 
by faith to even go to one another if there is offense. Help us, Lord, if we're worshiping you to leave our gift at the altar, go and be reconciled with our brother or sister, and then come back and present our altar, Lord. Help our worship and our prayers, Lord God, not to be hindered because we're harboring resentment or unforgiveness. Father, I pray that for anybody who hears this, whether it's online or, Lord, whether it's in this room this morning, I pray, God, that whoever hears this, Lord, if they recognize there's bitterness, anger, and clamor, and evil speaking, malice, I pray, Lord, you would direct their attention to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would repent, and by the strength of your Spirit, they will throw those things away and take on the characteristics of grace because, Lord, of the grace you have given to us. Let our lives conform to the pattern that you first gave to us. Help us to do this, Lord, so we can be that city on a hill, that light that's not hidden, and being the salt of the earth that you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I hope you're enjoying the study in Ephesians. It's a very rich book, and boy, you'd be surprised. I get to about a third of the things I actually want to get to, but anyway, uh, praise the Lord for that time. Hey, I want to um, uh, mention a, a few things to you. The first thing I want to mention is some uh, good news. If you happen to see a little bit more of a, of a glow on the faces of Michael and Jody Lee, it's because Colson and Kelly, or actually, well, not Colson, but Kelly's in labor right now. So, uh, so they are expecting a, um, a grandchild here at any moment. So any updates? Have you all gotten any updates since uh, anything? Nothing? No, nothing? no, 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 nuts yet. All right. So anyway, we need to pray for them. And so we're excited for them. Hey, next Saturday, hope you got your running shoes on, because next Saturday is the 5K. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, also it's Orphan Care Sunday as well. So excited about that. And so there's uh, two things going on. One, we have the, uh, it's Orphan Care Weekend. So we do have the Run More, One Less 5K. That's on Saturday, uh, November the 8th. At the same time, we're also having a barbecue dinner. And so this is the last Sunday that we're actually selling the tickets for the barbecue dinner plates. So um, I think Lauren and Molly are selling those, and that's behind me. So if you haven't got your tickets yet for the barbecue plate, make sure that you get those, all right? So looking forward to a great weekend uh, next weekend on that. So um, aside from that, we have, I mean, that's really the, the biggest things that are going on right now. We do have a uh, members meeting on the 15th. And looking forward to that. We have several things we want to bring before you and, and discuss with you as a church family. So look forward to being together on, on the 15th together that Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. So anything else? Michael? Tommy? Hmm? Those of you that are in the Exploring Covenant Baptist Church class, we will do session three this afternoon. And we'll do that immediately after the service in the fellowship hall. So uh, looking forward to that as well. So, all right. Well, if nothing else, I'll ask you all to stand up. And we'll be, uh, be ready to be uh, dismissed here. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we will remember today and afterwards the magnitude of your grace towards us. Give us, Lord, both the faith and the strength of your spirit, Lord, to, rep to replicate and reflect that grace, that forgiveness and the kindness uh, that you've ex uh, given to us, help us, Lord, to be able to reflect and replicate that to others so we can prove and demonstrate the pure and perfect will of God. We pray this in Jesus, his mighty name. Amen. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.